Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us at this uh, roundtable in BMA House, a roundtable between the two journals, the BMJ and the Vet Record, uh, on antimicrobial resistance. My name's Sandy Trees. Uh, I'm a veterinary surgeon, well, retired somewhat, but I'm a working crossbench peer in the House of Lords. Now, uh, I'll ask the other members of our roundtable to introduce themselves. So on my left is Peter Hawkey. Peter, kick off, please. Yes, I'm Peter Hawkey. I'm Professor of Clinical and Public Health Bacteriology at the University of Birmingham and Honorary Consultant Microbiologist at Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Birmingham. Um, I'm a medical microbiologist, but I have a long-standing interest in the environment uh, and also agricultural microbiology, and I sit on the DEFRA Antimicrobial Resistance Committee. Thank you, Peter. Tim. Yeah, so I'm Tim McHugh. I'm a professor of medical microbiology at uh, University College London, uh, based at the Royal Free Hospital up in North London. Um, so uh, my name is Emmanuel Way. I'm a consultant in infection at the Royal Free Hospital, and I'm also an honorary senior lecturer at UCL. Good afternoon, I'm Stuart Reid. I'm principal of the Royal Veterinary College here in London. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a veterinary surgeon by first training, but I'm no longer hands-on or hands-in. Um, uh, but my interest in antimicrobial resistance has really filled the, the, the last few years of, of my research career. My name's Jenny Bellini. I'm a practising farm animal veterinary surgeon in Dorset. Um, I work for Friesmore Livestock Health. Thank you, Jenny. I should perhaps say at the beginning, my, I have two particular aims or messages uh, and there'll be lots others emerge um, from this discussion but I I would like to see first of all um, us emphasize and get across the international nature of this problem because although we must uh, take responsible steps in the UK both in the medical and veterinary professions to limit our usage and, and refine our usage of an antimicrobials and antibiotics. This is a global problem and whatever we do here I think will be fruitless unless uh, there is concerted global action and Peter Hawkey certainly uh, will contribute uh, on that and I know. Um, and the other thing is to bring vets and medics together and so that each learns about what the other is doing and in a constructive and, and positive way. So could I pose initially perhaps the clinicians, you've touched on it, but what do you think are the, the major challenge, challenges we're facing? Tim? The major challenge uh, for me would be the control of infection in the hospital environment and the impact that has on patient care. It's a constantly changing envi environment. So, you know, today we're worried about MRSA, tomorrow we're worried about uh, C. difficile. So we're, it's a constantly changing environment and we need to think about how we manage infection control as a whole rather than fo over-focusing on one particular group of organisms, I think. I'm sure that Peter and Emmanuel have got specific organisms which they would identify as being particularly important. But I think there's a tendency to focus on one and then move, it's a moving target. And I think we have to be aware of that. Yes, indeed. Emmanuel. Well, from a, sort of a clinician's perspective, there's always sort of a, a double-edged sword. There's always the concern about not treating a patient adequately when they're very unwell um, and giving broad-spectrum antibiotics. And at the same time, there's the counter-argument of, you know, judicious use, the right drug for the right duration, uh, for the right um, condition. Um, and to some extent, we're helped by... Um, uh, uh, developments in 
molecular diagnostics and in improved culture techniques. Um, and I think there's a, there is a, a lot of sort of mileage in looking at um, additional biomarkers, so tests that look for signatures of organisms, um, which may be detectable before we've actually grown the organisms. Thank you, Emmanuel. Jenny, you're on the front line uh, treating... Well, actually, are you a large animal, companion animal? Or? Uh, completely large animal and Complete. sort of 95% dairy cattle. Um, so I think the challenge really for, for the agricultural industry is, is to continue to, to produce uh, meat and milk and dairy produce and uh, you know whatever we want to consume uh, uh, without the antibiotics that they perhaps once relied on before to, to prop up their production. So certainly in my in my career so far there's, there's definitely been a continuing shift towards preventative medicine and um trying to find other ways to to you know sustainably produce food that, that we all need without relying on on antimicrobials um, as perhaps we once did in the past Stuart, you you're no longer hands in as you said you're, i like the joke uh, but you have been active in research in this area what do you think are the key challenges I think there, there are two things, and it doesn't always actually relate to sick animals or sick people. Uh, what I've been particularly interested in recent times have been the, the areas that are less well understood. So, for example, teasing apart the epidemiology of the resistance determinant rather than the, the bug that it, that it might be, be riding on. Uh, I think that's one thing that's important. And part of that, uh, that also relates then to what's happening in healthy people and healthy animals. Um, because we don't routinely or certainly in terms of surveillance uh, play um, concentrate on, on those as, as particular foci. So teasing apart the different strands of the argument as well as trying to fill the gaps. I, I, I liken it to a jigsaw. We know quite a lot about hospital-acquired resistance um, and uh, so that might be part of a jigsaw that's well populated with pieces but there are still very large areas uh, where we aren't able to make evidence-based decisions or policy because we actually don't fully understand it. We'll maybe um, come back to you to see how you're going to solve that, how we're going to find the extra pieces or fill the jigsaw in. Peter, would you like to comment then about yes. the big challenges? Two challenges, really. One is, um, as we heard earlier, we've got some new molecular tests and in some situations we can apply those reasonably quickly in a, in a high-income hospital setting. But actually, for the practitioner standing beside a patient who's about to think, do I prescribe an antibiotic? I don't. We don't yet have a cheap, accessible test that I think needs to give an answer in 10 to 15 minutes. Otherwise, you're just not, it's not going to be practical to direct your prescribing according to that test. So that is the real challenge uh, in terms of diagnostics, I think, to actually make a change at the point of prescription. And then the other one is the broader one, um, as we've alluded to already, is that uh, we are, we've become a globally connected world. Um, globally connected in terms of movement of people and the movement of resistance genes in our gut. And that's one of the reasons why the big challenge in, in medical microbiology at the moment is multi-resistant Klebsiella and E. coli, the resistance to carbapenems, and will develop undoubtedly, are already developing resistance to some of the very new beta-lactamase inhibitors that have only just literally been launched. And it's the movement of those people around the world that's moving the genes. So whereas 30 years ago, you, if a resistance emerged in a particular country, it would by and large stay there. But because of global movement of people and the carriage of these gram-negative organisms in the gut, they're actually here and then through chance and events, they get out into the, uh, in, into the hospital setting. But I think then again, the challenge is from those countries is the accessibility of antimicrobials, particularly I can speak particularly for human medicine. 
you, know, you can literally buy antibiotics anywhere, the corner shop in many parts of the world. And then if you combine that with very poor public health infrastructure in terms of sewage disposal, plus uh, poor water supplies, very often people drinking polluted water, you've got a sort of a perfect storm developing. And that's a global, that globally, I think, is a political and economic uh, change. And that's why it's so heartwarming to our CMO and David Cameron and made, pushed it up the agenda in the G7 talks. Whether it'll slip down again, hope not. Absolutely, yes. Well, I think there's some doubt whether well, the current Prime Minister does have a lot on her mind, yes. admittedly, but I'm not sure she's quite as keen as David Cameron was. Can you give us some examples, <coughs> or an example, um, from your own work yeah, of, of, um, a, of a problem we've had in Britain that actually originated in some distant country? Mm. We've just published this year a, a survey looking at the carriage of ESBLs. So these are these are resistance genes, notably one called CTXM, that give you resistance to third-generation cephalosporins and most other beta-lactam antibiotics like ampicillin and some of the cephalospor other cephalosporins. Uh, and that's been around and quite common in parts of South Asia, India and Pakistan and China for some years. And we've been aware that people who travel perhaps receive hospital care or sometimes uh, not necessarily hospital care, come back colonised. So we set out to look at a very big sample, two and a half thousand normal people from general practices from four locations, which were reasonably, which were designed and stratified to represent pretty much the general English population. And ask the question, what are the carriage rates in, of these ESBL CTXMs in E. coli in those healthy people? And we also, those that submitted samples, filled out a very thorough, co a comprehensive questionnaire. And we found in Shrewsbury, for instance, the carriage rate was 4%. But in Birmingham, it was 19%. So these are you know, matched populations for size. And when you look at the factors, the key factor, about 50% of the ascribable risk for acquiring that CTXM was travel, particularly to South Asia. And the other factor was having relatives or close contact with people who travel on a regular basis to those countries. And we know now, very, very recent, we haven't published yet, looking at a smaller cohort, actually travelling to India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and coming back, 95% <coughs> of those individuals were colonised on return. They hadn't received antimicrobials, they'd just gone there and come back. So this is an example of how that, that global mobility of the resistance mm. genes. These are plasmid located, and as you say, we are, we're actually studying how they move around in the, in the gut flora at a molecular level using whole genome sequencing, obviously. So that's a concern, I think. And though in those countries there are dense populations of humans, but they're also often living in close proximity to animals. So when we're talking about zoonotic bacteria, for example, there's a possibility of transfer and carriage. And yeah, my suspicion is what what struck us very interesting was uh, this is the I thought maybe you would as we from the UK go there you've got your resident E. coli and you acquire if you like a, a local E. coli but it's not it's not going to colonise your gut but what we found actually was you acquire South Asian E. coli strains whether they're animal strains or not I don't know but I suspect because they colonise so readily I suspect they're human strains because you've got to remember 50% of individuals in India don't have access to a toilet so a slightly different situation but a real breeding ground for resistance because also most of our generic antibiotics are produced in that part of the world and the discharge is discharged very often into the environment 
selecting resistance in the environment. But yes, and I think the industrialization of agriculture in these countries is going to have a big play. Yeah. I've had some experience in China of that, visiting a huge chicken farm where ciprofloxacin was given routinely to all chickens in the, in the house. Can I turn to Tim and, and Emmanuel? Can you quantify the problems you have? I mean, how, how many cases are you finding where you have serious uh, drug resistance problems? Um, I mean, several a week or dozens or... If we looked at our uh, rates of bacteremia with E. coli, and our uh, figures are pretty much representative of the national average. I mean, it's between 9 and 10% of our E. coli's will have a resistance mechanism, which will be similar to the one that's been mentioned, CTXM. With the um, same organisms, if you're looking at a sort of higher-level antibiotics, such as carbapenems, it's quite low, um, and it's, it's less than sort of 1%, 0.5%, depending on which patient cohorts you look at. Obviously, patients that have had healthcare abroad, that risk goes up. And so um, we have a policy that if patients have had healthcare at any other institution, we use um, molecular tests, we screen them for these resistant organisms so that we can institute appropriate um, infection control measures. I think it's probably, turning to the vets, um true that we have relatively few problems with uh, antibiotic resistance clinically um, but tell us a bit uh, Jenny in cattle practice do you encounter it uh, widely uh, or much and in in relation to which uh, bacteria and which antibiotics it's very uncommon in in cattle practice it's certainly in my experience um, but of course a lot of the time we're not doing culture and sensitivity testing on on most of the infections that we treat so so we think it's uncommon but, but the testing the diagnostic testing isn't often being done um but you're getting response to treatment we're getting response to treatment response yeah. To yeah i mean at, at our practice we stopped using um third and fourth generation cephalosporins and fluoroquinolones almost two years ago and, and since we stopped using them there hasn't been a single case where we've we felt that they were necessary to use so all the other drugs that we use usually oxytetracyclines um penicillin and ampicillin have worked and we've had response to treatment so we think that drug resistance is is quite low in in castle medicine Stuart, have you any comments well, on that? could i just ask you a question because yeah. you asked a, a really pertinent or raised a really pertinent point there so failure to to treat or failure to cure um what are we talking about here when we talk about resistance is it is it a, a laboratory um, uh, phenomenon or is it i'm looking at my medical colleagues here is it the fact that you try to treat something and it doesn't it doesn't get better I think in a clinical setting, we would talk. We would normally confirm that using uh, tri- uh, testing of the organisms themselves, or demonstrating the presence of a, a molecular mechanism. I think we have the um, we have the luxury to be able to do that in Western medicine. Um, whereas if you're wor- working in other parts of the world, um, certainly, then it's the resistance will be assumed because it's a failure, failure of success. So, yeah, I mean, David Patterson, uh, some, when ESBLs, particularly CTXM, first came on the scene, did quite a big study, showed that once you had an, an MIC to Kefataxime above one, the mortality tripled from about 10 to 15% for bacteremia to about 60%. And once the MIC had risen to eight, you're looking at 100%. So you're right. You, 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 other factors cause mortality. Mortality, as we know, sometimes a poor marker of, of outcome. Uh, well, it's a very important outcome marker if you're, you're in the mortality 
mortality sector. But that extrapolation is there, yeah. Um, now, in India, there are examples now of, um, for instance, renal units are having to close because of intractable problems with carbapenemase, NDM, but other carbapenemases as well. Klebsiella causing cross-infection. So, so many people are not just getting infected, they're also dying. So... But you're right, it's, it's, I always feel antimicrobial resistance is just like climate change. It's one of those things that is undoubtedly connected to man, man's activity. Um, it's not immediately apparent what changes in strategy and interventions are going to be successful. And we have relatively poor data, as you say, uh, say there, absolutely in many areas, which are going to inform us in our strategy. But it seems to be going one way. <laughs> I want to move now really to sort of where <coughs> where is resistance coming from and I'll ask the vets and the medics what they think but it might be useful just to clarify some definitions we are talking in general uh, terms here we call the round table antimicrobial resistance and the O'Neill Commission report used that term antimicrobial resistance um, but I think it is useful to appreciate that that embraces antiviral resistance and things like HIV and so on which have no veterinary connection um, uh, they include uh, protozoal agents like malaria and uh, resistance to antimalarials is a huge issue but again doesn't have a zoonotic or a, a one health uh, aspect and TB which we do have in in animals but we never treat so I think when we're thinking about where is it coming from particularly obviously um, those um, that the distinction between those definitions is important but can I turn then to uh, doctors first I mean where do you think and what is the evidence to support it um, the problems are coming from are they are the problems in humans being derived mainly from other humans and human use or is there significant evidence for alternative sources? We think both professions, we think of antibiotics as something in a bottle, something synthetic and undoubtedly, you know, that's, that's an antimicrobial. But you have to remember that antimicrobials have been around as long as bacteria have been around because they come, most antimicrobials are derived from natural products, from actinomycetes or streptomycetes. Where do they live? They live, I used to be a plant pathologist, so I have sort of interest in this. They live in the mycorrhiza, which is that environment around the rootlet where you've got bacteria such as, for instance, a bacterium called cloivera, which is key in solubilizing phosphate. Phosphate is difficult for, for plants to take up. And it needs to live next door to a streptomycete or an actinomycete, and it's producing an antibiotic. So what does cloivera do? On its genome, it has an entirely inducible gene, which actually is the same gene, the same resistance gene as CTXM. So those, so in a sense, the resistance is there buried in both the producers and in those cohabiting bacteria. And it's that horizontal gene transfer, that mobilization of those genes out, you're often on plasmids, but not always, sometimes on things called integrons, which are like sort of jumping genes, uh, into bacteria which are commensals. So bacteria that live in our gut or live on us that can cause infection. And this, I think, touching the earlier conversation we had, what is failure? Well, you know, the fact that we found 18% um, of people in Birmingham are carrying ESBLs, 
Most of those people are never going to get an infection with that ESBL, but they might. So that's the driver there. But of course, if we take oral antimicrobials or antibiotics that like third generation cephalosporins get metabolized in the liver, dumped into the gut, they'll select in the gut. So we drive resistance rates up. So if you look at normal people in, in China, a study we did in, um, in my university town in Changsha, 60% of normal E. coli carry CTXM versus 4% in Shrewsbury. Mm. So it's a human usage. And my own personal view is we're thinking about CTXM, which appeared in the British dairy herd, some surveillance work done by the old VLA, now APHA, um, showed that you know, a lot of calves particularly were colonised and the genotypes were ones that had occur that occurred specifically in human medicine. And they'd occurred in UK in human medicine much before they appeared in, in, in cattle. So I think we, as humans, gave it, if you like, in gave it to, to, to the cattle and, and, the med, uh, and, and the animals. However, you know, if you then use antimicrobials on top and things like third-generation dry cow therapy, which it's super if we can avoid that, that'll drive more colonisation, which again, for mastitis, you know, E. coli mastitis, not every cow that's carrying E. coli gets mastitis, and you don't necessarily get E. coli mastitis. You might get a staphylococcal mastitis, but if you do, and you're a cow that's already colonised with an ESBL, mm. then that's going to be that's going to be problematic for the cow, isn't it? I don't know. Talk asking Emmanuel. a vet there. Yes. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Yeah. yeah. Emmanuel. The cases you're seeing, and those are comial in, uh, and and they're in transplant patients, immunocompromised people. Where do you think those uh, antibiotic resistant or antifungal resistant isolates have come from? Um, well, going back to so the the bacterial um, question. Many of these patients are having their immune systems altered by by the by the fact that they're having a transplant, and so you're almost creating a similar situation as you've described there. The root the roots of a plant. You're providing an environment where you're increasing the chances that this bacteria can stay around for a longer period of time, perhaps in a place where it wouldn't normally be found. So, for example, a lot of these patients have got central lines. They've got other prosthetic material that's inserted into them to support them during this very critical stage of their healthcare. And so, organisms are going into uh, a sort of a, a milieu where they're not encountering the normal aspects of the immune system to protect the body from them and on top of that these patients are being given broad spectrum antibiotics um, so we often find that patients that have uh, central lines and other prosthetic material because of their surgery are, are prone to getting infections they're normally in places that antibiotics may be more difficult to get into at the concentrations that you need to to achieve sort of an adequate concentration against the the organism and so you might find that you get a subpopulation um, being selected out there that then comes back and um, causes a problem you know two or three weeks later um, so I think there's a as mentioned by uh, previously there's a there's a combination of genetic me uh, mechanisms that are occurring and also what we're doing with our patients that makes them a bit more vulnerable. Which are the key bacteria uh, to which you're referring that you've got a problem with? So generally when you're looking at um, patients who've got central lines it can be maybe bacteria that are not very pathogenic at all. So I think of things like Acinetobacter baumannii or, or other organisms such as Pseudomonas aeruginosa that you might normally find in aquatic areas associated with plants, but given the opportunity to reside on a and generate biofilms, which is an area of, of interest for antibiotic resistance developing, you almost get like a... Um, 
uh, a sort of a community of bacteria which in themselves help protect all of themselves from the treatments you're trying to do. And often the the optimal management is to take the device out um, because antibiotics won't work. And that in itself can be quite difficult if a patient is very unwell. Stuart, you've been active in research in this area. Would you like to comment on the, the movement between animals and humans? It's interesting. So I'm referring to a paper we published, I think must be five years ago now in science. Um, we looked at animals and uh, uh, cattle specifically and, and humans in Scotland, uh, where all of the Salmonella typhimurium DT104 were isolated and typed in the same laboratory. So it was, a, it was about as good as you get uh, in terms of St. Patrick contemporaneous populations and then the same laboratory. And there were two observations from that study. The first one was that not looking at an individual antimicrobial, but looking at the range of antimicrobial resistance genes that were detected in, in, these, uh, in these isolates, that the diversity, so the range, if you will, uh, that were found in humans was much greater than that that was in the, than were in the animal population. And this for a, a bug that is generally accepted, or the tenet was that it's acquired through the food chain. So what, what that really led us to conclude, and I won't bore you with the details, but it, it, it was unlikely that the resistance that we were seeing in the animal isolates were coming from the, sorry, in the human isolates were coming from the animal population. Not impossible, but unlikely, given ecologically it had the more uh, the greater diversity. Equally, we're not saying it's the other way around, we're saying it's coming from somewhere else, but it's unlikely to be the, the major source. We then went on and uh, conducted a bigger study involving a global phylo phylogeny, now just talking rather about the resistance, but talking about the, 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 um, the bacteria itself. When we looked at the um, bacterial populations and whole genome sequences in, in the animal and human isolates from around the globe, what was apparent is that the, the majority of the circulation was occurring within species. So most of the Salmonella typhimurium DT104 that were circulating in humans were distinct from those that were circulating in animals. However, there was occasional crossover and it went in both directions. So, you know, and you don't need too many crossover events before you then get the amplification. And as Peter was mentioning earlier on, if you only have to get it into cattle and then start using antimicrobials in cattle to effectively bring about the storm. So, you know, in terms of where that source is, um, one would have to say it points towards uh, the area of greater usage. Um, and that would suggest high concentration use in, in, in some human environments. Not to say that the animal population and agriculture and veterinary use isn't contributing, because undoubtedly it will be, any use will. Uh, <clears throat> and the second thing is to um, perhaps cause us to pause and say, perhaps we don't understand the epidemiology of these transmission events as well as we thought we did. The other interesting experiments have been carried out in China, where colistin and polymixin have never been licensed for human use, but have used moderately heavily in uh, food production in China and the emergence of plasmid-mediated resistance, the MCR1 gene, where pigs at slaughter, 25 from memory, 25-30% were coming with gut bacteria with MCR1 in. And then looking at a cohort of E. coli causing urinary tract infection in, the sim in a similar human setting, it was a very small percentage, only about 1.2% or so were carrying MCR1. But it's interesting they were carrying that with no direct selective pressure. And, no, and you may say, well, it was co-selection. 
but actually MCR1's on a plasmid with no other, no other resistance genes. So it just shows that there's that leakage, and it's a leakage both ways, but I think both populations maintain a lot of their resistance genes by the selection pressures and the practices in those populations. So the interchange isn't necessarily that great. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. we need to control yeah. both, is my, my feeling. Let's turn a little bit to solutions and we'll come on to what, what's being done in the medical and veterinary um, context as well. But um, targeted treatment as a result of precise diagnosis is really key here. Can you tell us a little bit about the innovations in diagnostics, um, particularly bedside or maybe penside, that either we are already starting to use or we hope to be have a, a, available shortly, which should help in that, in that context? So there's um, there's a variety of tools. I, and it's actually, you talk about bedside or, or penside, and that's a, that's a real question isn't it sort of the the near patient testing and how quickly you t turn that around so we have we have a range of molecular tools picking out particular markers identifying identifying genes which are, uh, are relevant for resistance my anxiety about that is that we're always playing catch-up that you know we, we set up a we and setting up a molecular t so it's okay for you know peter and myself and emmanuel and have set up molecular tests in-house in our own facilities and you can do that quite quickly but getting that into a system which is usable in clinical practice by the, in a near patient setting that, that takes a substantial amount of investment and time and by the time you've done that you've moved on to another another organism or another gene set. So I think we need to think carefully about the tools we use and how they're applied and um, investing too much in single, single targets. There's a great hope at the moment in whole genome sequencing and at the moment that's quite hard work and um, although there's tools which could be used close the the need to analyze so you know um there's the mini ion which is you know you'll have seen used it was used in the ebola outbreak out in the out in the jungle the trouble with that is it produces such a huge amount of bioinformatic information that although you can sit it on your kitchen table and use it then you've got to have some somebody trained to to analyze that data or you've got to have the algorithm set up to use that and i think we're some distance away from having having that so we we can all point to friends and colleagues who are using these out in the field and near to near to patients but actually using them in a real time that can inform the the practice of a clinician um, I think it's still some way away, so, but it's it's, it's, it's um, that sounds negative. I think it's hopeful, but we need some work in that area. Um, so thinking about appropriate technologies in settings where they can have you can have an action, uh, an a, a result which is actionable in a time frame which is useful. So the, conventionally, clinical microbiology has given you a result five days after you've made a decision as to how you're going to treat your uh, treat your patient. Um, moving that forward and being able to predict that outcome is, is is the challenge for us at the moment. And I think we're edging there, but I'm not sure that... We're in we're, at about 24 to 48 yeah. hours. So well, we've got that ability to perhaps change existing empirical therapy. But as I said earlier, I think what we need, and, and we may be that actually a phenotypic test, uh, a cheap, very, very rapid mm -hmm. phenotypic test may be the answer. Big problem with commensals because, you know, where's the organism? Something like a urine tract infection, great. 
you know, if you you look at those bugs, you can look at them with a rapid phenotypic or molecular test, you can make a diagnosis. But on a global basis, because we've got to remember, we only look at it from this sort of bubble of the Western world or North, Northern Europe. Uh, if the test is more than the treatment, people are going to hate the treatment. I agree with phenotypic tests. People might consider me a molecular microbiologist uh, because of my interest in molecular diagnostics. I'm worried that we put too much emphasis on on tests which don't capture the whole behaviour of, of an organism in, in setting. So you look for you know, particular genes but ignore the flux genes or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, for me, if you're treating a patient, then the drug that works on that bug, regardless of the mechanism, is, is the one that you want. And just because you can't detect a mechanism is, is, doesn't mean to say it's, it's, it's the relevant piece of information. I was going to say, I mean, with a big practice, like, Jen, is, is there, do you do, pra- in test, do you do in-practice testing or do you send your stuff out? Yeah, we do some, so it's, it's nowhere near as scientific as, as medics, but um, we do a lot of in-house um, bacteriology on milk samples. Um, some of our farmers also do on-farm bacteriology on milk samples, so they've got their own incubators and and plates on farm, and they and they culture their own samples. Um, I think that's been something that's massively changed antibiotic use for mastitis in dairy cows. So some of our farmers would no longer um, give antibiotics to a an E. coli mastitis that so they just treat them with with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and fluids, um, and that that's been quite a big change, I, I would say. Um, we we also have um, you know blood machines to run basic bloods, but other than that, we don't do a lot of, of in house lab testing. Peter, specifically turning to you, uh, are there innovations in in screening at airports and so on to which would enhance our biosecurity? I mean, uh, one's thinking ahead of of of. of of tools that or thermal imaging might re- reveal temperatures which might indicate an infection but are there any other sophisticated things on the horizon not that i'm aware i mean the, the you're right i mean thermal imaging will work great if you've got an infection you've got influenza or sars um what we're worried more about particularly with the gram negative world is this this movement in commensal organisms so we could introduce rectal swabbing of everyone landing at heathrow but i don't think people are going to come through heathrow are they um and to a certain extent it's trying to go back to the root i think that's going to be the thing that's going to drive us there and you know the chinese uh, ministry of health has introduced a number of controls which are certainly having having an effect now they've got a good surveillance very good surveillance system um but prior to that like many health economies medical health economies in the world hospitals and practitioners got an income from selling drugs to patients. In fact, I remember in my own hospital in Changsha about eight or nine years ago when it was re- completely rebuilt, 4,400 beds, and dinner with the chief executive, and he said, Peter, do you realise that over 20% of our income for this wonderful new building comes from selling drugs to patients? And a lot of those are antibiotics. He said, I'm concerned about that. So now in China, hospitals cannot make a profit. They have to provide the drug at cost price, a fixed cost price. This is the sort of coordinated action we've got to to put in, I think. And that's a bigger question we may want to think about is how we compensate the industry for developing new, smart, new antibiotics that are effective against these resistance ones. But that leads nicely to the next problem. I mean, we need to use carefully what we've got, but are you seeing on the front line any response from the pharmaceutical uh, um, companies 
to uh, to the pressure that the O'Neill Commission report, for example, has exerted to um, improve the pipeline. Are, are you s seeing any results of that yet? Yes, there are some results. I mean, there's some. I do a certain amount of consultancy for the industry. I mean, I know of some phase one and phase two compounds, which are very, very interesting, exciting. The market shrunk because if you think about a major pharmaceutical company, they are not just making antibiotics, they're making anti-cancer drugs, they're making anti-diabetes drugs, etc. All of those have a long-term income. So the patients are going to be on them for months, years. Antimicrobials, two, three weeks, that's it. Resistance will undermine your product as well. So when you look at the uh, net present value, which is a way companies assess future drugs, antibiotics are always negative. Uh, so that's why we're down to sort of four, three or four major companies that are still in the market and obviously biotechs. But having said that, if you've got a really good antibiotic that's going to work against a multiply resistant organism, that's a big problem worldwide, you know, you'll get a return. But it's chancy. And as you said, the O'Neill Commission, uh, of course, headed by an economist, did, did have some interesting ideas of how to incentivise uh, discovery and development. Um, so can I turn to the vets and then come back to the, the medics? Um, what are we doing as a profession to uh, reduce and refine and replace uh, our use of antibiotics? So I think there's been quite a lot of big changes over the, over the past few years in our profession, certainly on, on the front line. Um, there's, there's quite a lot of social pressure. It's something we haven't really talked about much, but I think a large part of this problem um, is, is the sociology of it. So it's social pressure of prescribing, and um, especially in the veterinary world, because lots of our farmers are actually administering um, drugs themselves. So, so they'll have medicines stored on farm and, and ultimately make the decision about which drug to give that cow, even though as a vet we may have written protocols and instructions for them. They you know, Ultimately, they're the one administering the medicines. Um, so I think greater training of, of farmers is something that the industry is focused on. Um, and certainly in our practice, we've had quite quite large uptake with greater training of farmers in, in, into these issues and administering medicines and handling medicines properly. Um, we've also sort of refined our use as an industry. I was saying saying earlier to, to someone that um, there's some new red tractor legislation that's come into place on the 1st of June, which has is, which is prohibited the use of the the high priority critically important antibiotics and um, without appropriate diagnostic testing to, to show that they're necessary um, so that's really fresh legislation and, and that sort of followed some some industry campaigning as a practice we we removed those drugs several years ago and um, together with some milk buyers and some some milk processing companies we've sort of we've had a drive to, to try and push that through um, to make that a national policy which which now with the red tractor legislation you know it has become that so we've refined our use in terms of what drugs we use um, and I think all the time we're having conversations now on farm about what we can do to reduce the use um, and uh, the profession has moved towards preventative medicine um, increased vaccine use um, increased uh, you know better nutrition feed, feeding animals better so they get less disease and, and housing them better so they get less disease so certainly I think the profession is moving in that direction um, although obviously there's still you know there's still more work to be done. Dry cow therapy used to be quite a, an important uh, an area where antibiotics were used a lot, but you're using physical barriers now in the teat canal, aren't you, to limit? Yeah, so selective infection. dry cow therapy is, although it's not, you know, it's not 100% adopted throughout the UK, but it's but it's widely adopted on most farms. So not all all cows will receive antibiotics at dry off now, whereas 10, 15 years ago they would have done that. They some of them just have internal teat sealants to prevent new intramammary infections. Um, and 
again sort of cow side diagnostic testing to aid with those decisions has helped with that so the fact that we can test a cow before she's dried off and determine whether or not she has mastitis um, or, or a high cell count you know, likely will get mastitis um, can aid those decisions for farmers. So, so diagnostic tests have played a large part in, in dry cow therapy and, and that's reduced antibiotic use in, in the dairy cow industry you know, a lot. Stuart, do you have some comments? Yeah, I think on several levels, I think the the solutions are probably going to be economic ones um, because it is the ultimate paradox or the tragedy of the commons. You know, we want everybody to use fewer antimicrobials until it's your own child or your own animal. And uh, that's always going to be the case. But the message is certainly now, I think, out there. And if you look at the performance of um, both the medical profession and the veterinary profession, usage is going down. Um, you know, sales are down, uh, certainly on the veterinary side, uh, by about 13% across Europe, which is fairly dramatic when you think of where we started on this notwithstanding the fact that the data are not perfect certainly the trend is 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 significant you know poultry um have done a remarkable job the fish aquaculture have done a remarkable job pigs are getting there um so i think the message is out there but ultimately it will come down to what we are prepared to pay for food i suspect because all the changes that Jenny's just talked about, better housing, better husbandry, actually come at a cost. And to some extent, antimicrobials historically were used to prop up um, the the cost of, 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 of husbandry, if you, if you like. So we have to be prepared for that. Uh, if you look at um, uh, the FAO have a, a, a paradigm, a One Health paradigm, where they talk about a technical level solution, a social level solution, a, a behavioural level, and then an, uh, a, an institutional level solution. And it's only when those three things come together that you can actually affect real change. So you, you need to have the vaccine, you need to stop people um, behaving in certain ways or not maintaining closed herds, and you need then some intergovernmental or legislative action to make the whole thing come together. And we're not quite there with antimicrobial resistance. That said, um, one of the, I think, interesting phenomena that uh, we are starting to witness is those large multinational companies who have supply chains as well as retail outlets and you could pick your own and you'll probably be correct but any of the big international companies that work in in the food business when they make a decision about the use of antimicrobials or any other policy come to that it can come into effect internationally overnight in 40, 50, 100 countries around the world. And that's something no government can make happen. And I, I do wonder, ultimately, whether if there is to be an economic solution that we should be engaging better, on the, certainly on the, the veterinary side, with those multinational uh, food-producing companies. So tell us what's happening in the, in the medical profession to uh, reduce usage and refine usage and replace usage. I mean, there are uh, antibiotic stewardship um, ward rounds and many of these consist essentially of ensuring that patients who are on antimicrobials have a review so that they don't continuously um, carry on on their antimicrobial without a clinical decision being made and there are many ways of, of approaching this firstly you need the team so you need the staff time uh, the pharmacist to support you on these on these ward rounds um, there are obviously sort of top-down um, approaches whereby um, trusts can be um, basically scored on their antibiotic stewardship, in particular on their usage. Um, and there are some agreed terminologies such as you know, defined daily doses so that you can compare your use with other equivalent institutions. 
Next question, as you were saying, goes to the uh, it's it's using the right levers. And if we go back to MRSA, which is whilst it's a multi-resistant organism, is a slightly different scenario and in some ways a doddle to control. Because in the UK, we had a situation where we were looking at healthcare-associated infections. So by and large, it was being generated in hospitals and related to patients who either had close contact with people who were in hospital or out of hospital. So screening, screening for colonisation and then preventing transmission led over five to six years, which some Dutch modelers predicted very accurately, to the eradication virtual eradication of MRSA. So we're now down to a few hundred bacteremias per year, whereas the peak, we were nearly up to 10,000 bacteremias a year. And the reason we got that control was quite simply because a little bit of money, Tony Blair realised it was a political issue. Daily Mail had headlines there. And so he put some money in, he created a team, an action team, and I must admit I was at one of the conferences when this policy was being decided. And I was quite cynical because at that stage, 50% of all Staph aureus that we isolated from the blood of patients in England was an MRSA. Can we crack this? And the answer was we could because of the economic factors. So he put in quite a stern uh, withdrawal or withholding of trusts funding. So chief executives, and also he made chief executives personally responsible for the reduction. So if people have got to sign their name against it and this to do with the income of your organisation, it makes it happen. I think in some ways we're sort of, we've sort of done that, but I feel we've backed off in the last few years from really getting serious about it. It's the same thing with C. diff, we've, though we haven't cracked that nearly to the same extent, but we might in the future. So we've got to have those, those levers in place. Otherwise, all sorts of other things come in as an agenda item. And infection control is a critical factor in hospital-acquired infection. Go out in general practice. Yes, we've we've had some reductions, but in fact, rates of uh, rates of usage have slightly crept up again. Um, and again, for the, one of the commonest infections, urinary tract infection, we switched to new nitrofurantoin from trimethoprim. Okay, on the grounds of resistance. Um, slight worries there whether the really ill patients who are developing a bacteria are actually getting treated because nitrofurantoin doesn't get into tissue. And I think we have to be careful that we're missing and not focusing on the really sick patients that do need the carbapenem, do need the piperacillin-tazobactam, those higher-powered antibiotics, which we naturally want to not use, same way as you're, you're doing a superb job in dairy farming, keeping those back. We need to do the same in human medicine. So we need some better diagnostics. And think carefully about those unintended consequences. I think, Emmanuel, you touched on, a, I think, is a really important tool here, benchmarking. And, and uh, there's a very good example in the veterinary world where, uh, ironically, it's in small animals, not in the sort of uh, government uh, li livestock systems, um, where you can, you can uh, practices are being compared. You, compare, you can compare your prescribing habits with other practices on an anonymized basis. And I think when people see that they're using a lot more in cats than most people, it begs the question, well, why? And we, we should then do something about that. And I think that sort of comparison approach is extremely powerful to change behavior. And it, it can happen without, I mean, you, you referred to the remarkable reductions in cattle and we've seen terrific reductions in veterinary use actually we've we're now well below the 50 milligram per kilogram target that the Neil commission set and we've done it two years ahead of schedule being a major uh, percentage reduction in in the actual use of, of antibiotics um, but I, I, I put, are you 
seeing um, uh, any increase in actual disease or ill health or indeed reduced productivity uh, that you might associate with the reduced use of antibiotics? No, so in in our practice, we've seen we've seen no change in in health or welfare of, of any of the animals you know, for the last two years, and and no change in productivity either. Um, and touching on the benchmarking, that's something that we use wildly at the practice, and I think is is used across you know across the the livestock industry quite a lot. So lots of the the milk companies will benchmark their their farmers. Some of the supermarkets benchmark their dairy farmers on their antibiotic use, um, and if they're too high, that they, they, they do get told that they have to reduce it. Um, and in, in our practice internally, we, we did a lot of benchmarking of vets as well as farmers on, on their antibiotic use and, and, and got people to sort of drive down their use that way. So I think benchmarking is a really powerful tool, which we've had great success with. Yeah, I think it's, um, it, is, it is quite illuminating that in other, the poultry industry has made great strides and they appear not to be seeing any concomitant increase in, in ill health or, or loss of productivity. Now, I was talking at a meeting where a um, professor from uh, Bristol from the Langford uh, big practice, and they've done the same sort of things as you've done, and they said, actually, yes, we've driven our prescribing right down, but they've very carefully looked, and they haven't seen a rise in, uh, in ill health in the, in the livestock. Because if, if we did, then it wouldn't, farmers would complain, you know. It, yes. would, it would be... <laughs> Right. They'd stop doing it. There's, no, there's nothing there's forcing them to do the it. So, yeah. <laughs> the other, uh, apart from trying to stimulate the um, in, uh, introduction of new antibiotics um, and improved diagnostics, um, the other area we haven't touched on is the uh, um, innovation in terms of vaccine prophylaxis. Now, and particularly with bacteria, of course, it's it's. We can produce a lot of vaccines, actually, to bacteria, but for many of the problem areas, we, there are difficulties. Are you seeing any progress in vaccine development in human medicine? Patchy in bacterial diseases because of the difficulty if you've got a commensal organism in terms of developing a vaccine. Because, you know, you, you develop an E. coli vaccine, all of us carry on small numbers, but we've all got that E. coli there. There are some efforts going on. I sort of don't, not. I don't directly work in that. I know of some efforts in that area, perhaps with one or two of the pathogenic uh, subtypes of E. coli that are particularly prone to cause urinary tract infection. Again, it may come down to economics. You can produce a vaccine. Is it actually going to protect the population that's going to subsequently develop a disease which is going to be expensive enough to make it worthwhile treating the whole population? So the question then is whether you need it. So I was interested. So we don't tend to talk about vaccines so much in, in bacteriology. Uh, but you, you as vets were talking quite a lot about vaccines. But the area that, and sort of in a horizon scanning uh, idea, the area that is increasingly gaining traction is the idea of host-directed therapy. So not necessarily vaccines, but using things to boost the host immune response. Mm. So it, I know TB is sort of off the agenda today, but um, in the world of T, in the world of TB, using things like ibuprofen, which boosts the immune response, has some antibacterial effect, but also boosts the host immune response, and those sorts of mo- using those sorts of molecules to to bolster uh, an immune response to it. And I think that these are very early stage ideas. They're a bit frightening because you're talking about tinkering with the host immune response, but they might be areas which where we can um, protect an anti- antimicrobial approach by, by boosting a host immune response before you come, come in. So, so picking up on that point, um, 
slightly different scenario and it's to do with with fungi an area that I'm I'm interested in but um, a lot of the patients that we see who uh, undergo transplantation or have um, uh, significant um, uh, sort of immune suppression are at risk of fungal disease and there's a lot of work now looking at actual correlates of of protective um, uh, uh, innate immunity and so again looking at protecting antimicrobials and antifungals it may be that we may be able to better select which patients we give much broader antimicrobials to in this, in this case antifungals by knowing what their genetic makeup is to see whether they are at greater risk of these infections during the period when they're most immunosuppressed so it may be that you might again have a very a much more tailored approach based on the immune profile of your patient uh, in a certain scenario. And of course, economics work out there because you've got a high-value disease because you're investing a lot of money in treating that patient. There, I think we've been neglecting, and it's very difficult to get, because new, totally sort of novel things are very often difficult to get funding for, is phage therapy, which has been practised off and on in Russia for a long, long while. Um, for MRSA decolonization, I work with a company and we tried very hard. And Matt developed a set of phages, which an animal model were perfect at eradicating colonization, but it could never get take up by the big funding bodies to develop that. So I think that that could be in an area, particularly in superficial colonization. Um, MRSA isn't a problem in the UK, it's still a worldwide problem. Um, uh, so that's one thing. And then also looking at the microbiome, which is a particular interest of mine, in relation to C. diff, where we set up the first, uh, we got the first license, MHRA license for faeces as a medicinal product to treat C. diff. Um, we're just about to launch, relaunch the service using that. So that's a consequence of antimicrobial use. But again, in a way like uh, host-directed therapy, host-stimulated therapy, understanding the microbiome, whether decolonization I think may be difficult, but it's a, that's something we are beginning to look at, decolonizing people using normal flora then you've got the risk of having a faecal transplant just because you're carrying a resistant organism, which might, in your individual case, the individual risk is quite relatively high, I would say, for the greater benefit of the, uh, the herd. Yeah, so understanding the microbiome is really quite... Comp- it's, it's stating the obvious to say it's complex, but understanding the impact of that. Mm. So in our... Um, so we've been looking at the lung microbiome in, in patients with primary, primary immunodeficiency of various sorts and understanding the relationship between a, a dysregulated or dysfunctional microbiome and how that relates to antimicrobial resistance. So you have patients with repeated um, exacerbations of their disease and then repeated treatments with antibiotics. So you get a change in their uh, microbiome uh, you see in the lung, you see the nor- the typical respiratory pathogens disappearing, actually. So things like Haemophilus and Streptomyces not being so prominent. But you get strange new bugs appearing, whether they're f- and f- refilling that niche. The bit that is interesting there is how that affects the what you'd call the resistome. What, what uh, antibiotic resistances are, are g- being given the chance to emerge and to develop in that environment. So... Uh, so I think as we begin to get the tools to understand and uh, explore the microbiome, uh, then over these next few years, we'll start to understand how that has an impact on anti- anti-mi- antimicrobial use, usage in those, in those populations. There's an interesting link there but in, in True One Health Star, which I'm involved with a lot of work with Liz Wellington at Warwick, mm. is that 
we've got all these marvellous resistant all the SBLs and in some cases carbapenemase producers. Interestingly, 0.1% of our 2,500 cohort were carrying carbapenemase silently. So actually they say, well, that's only a small amount, but that's one in a thousand. That's a thousand in a million. So that's 50,000 people, carry, normal in healthy people carrying a carbapenemase resistant producing organism. But that's through sewage, sewage treatment. We found ironically that the sewage go, you know, our feces go in there with all the resistance genes. We rather assume they disappear. Not a bit of it, actually. The work we did, as say, on the efflux from those that sewage work showed that not only did you get, did they survive really quite well, but we got a lot of genetic rearrangements. So, in fact, the pressure of treating the sewage actually caused the reassortment of those resistance genes. So, again, and then where does that go? That has to go into rivers, and it goes into the general environment, recreational waters, agricultural exposure so we've got this cycle and we have to in india the cycle's going very very fast in sweden it's going quite slowly but it's always there this understanding i agree with you we just don't we need more funding to look at how important those links are those levers are then we know what to spend our money on in trying to interrupt that transmission can we just round off with some thoughts about what we can each learn from one another what what do you think medics could learn about this problem and its solutions from the vets and vice versa what could the vets learn from the medics who's going to have a first go at that well the thing i've heard today is so in medicine in human medicine we tend to focus on the on the individual and look very close to the individual whereas in veterinary medicine it seems you have a larger population a population approach and I, and for me, understanding the population interactions is most likely what would. For me, it's about transmission, and that's a population issue rather than an individual issue. So we've tended. Uh, I'm sort of Peter and Emmanuel both have responsibility to treat people, so it's easy for me to say I'd like to step back and say let's look at the pop- population and see how that transmission works. And I think the lessons from veterinary medicine are important in that area. Um, and I also I, I haven't really got a clear picture of of how the interaction how much um, there is a zoonotic element to this to antimicrobial resistance as a whole whether it truly is a zoonotic thing or whether these are actions going on in, in parallel which occasionally uh, you can make a link but whether that link is realistic is really the problem or not is uncertain. I think that's the trouble. Unpicking that link is difficult. So if we go to countries which are relatively easy to study, which have got very high rates, they tend to have high rates both in their animal populations and in their human populations. So is that a cross-thing? Cross and I think that's where, again, there's been some good work in looking at husbandry, if you like, and in some ways translating those good husbandry ideas back into human medicine, not so much for treating infections, but looking at maintaining a healthy microbiome and instituting treatments which be they vaccines or other treatments which you use a lot in veterinary medicines to prevent people getting sick actually well, given that this is a bmj vet record um session i was actually going to come back to tb and not not to talk yeah. about tb but after the great tb trial in glasgow um, um whatever it was 100 and 20 years ago, whatever it was, there was an editorial appeared in the veterinary record and the, it, the conclusion was, and it was about unfit carcasses um, uh, for human consumption. But the final sentence was, and I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but there's an important bit in here, it said that the answer will come from 
the two branches of of medical practice working together that is human medicine and veterinary medicine the two branches of medical practice and that's where I think the solution has to come from it's going to be us working together uh, rather than in our own uh, uh, trenches. Do you know I've just I've just come back from the Congo where we were talking about um, uh, pandemic response but um, obviously there, there was a focus on Ebola but as part of our conversations with the World uh, Conservation Society they were very interested in TB in the pygmy community at the top end of the Congo and the interactions with the, the their domestic animals and their great apes and it, and it really came home to me that this is a you know the one health issue um, not necessarily an anti, not even an antimicrobial resistance issue in this case but uh, understanding where the TB is moving between these they weren't even sure that it was whether it was mycobacterium tuberculosis or not but it's, it's understanding that sort of interaction between the two populations is critical. And for antimicrobial resistance, I mean, it's it's probably the best example of something that is going to require a One Health yeah. approach. Jenny, have you any thoughts? I think um, actually there's quite a lot of similarities between between what what we do. Whereas I I probably didn't day to day don't don't think about that, and and that's been really interesting. Again, you know, we, if we work together more, um, your diagnostic testing, I think, obviously is is far and beyond what we have, but. But it doesn't seem to me that there's much there's much research going on in the veterinary world to to improve sort of pen side cow side diagnostic testing and and whether that's something that can you know, can be developed and done more, um, perhaps will you know really help out what we do. Yeah. We, we I mean usually the technology moves from medicine to vet and we will acquire we'll ride on the coattails of what happens even if slightly different organisms it'd be easy to adapt the. The software and the hardware and the microfluidics will be standard, but there's a lot of work going on on that. I'm very, um, I'm very optimistic about the response. This has been a major crisis, and we we certainly should congratulate the chief medical officer and the chief veterinary officer and 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 Jim O'Neill and others, and, and David Cameron to, for um, drawing huge attention to this and putting it on the national risk register and and introducing it on the agenda of the G7, G20 conferences. And we need to meet and maintain that momentum. Certainly an awful lot's been done, and it seems to me that benchmarking is hugely important, and, and stewardship schemes, which we have both in medicine and in veterinary medicine in our different sectors, are hugely important, together with stimulating new vaccine development, new diagnostics, and hopefully improving the pipeline of new drugs. But at the end of the day, I, I come back to where we started in a way, we've got to tackle this globally um, because we, we will, although we might be able to eliminate or certainly reduce endogenous genesis of, of antimicrobial resistance, it'll get to us from elsewhere and we'll be vulnerable to that and those economic levers will be there we did a we were funded to do a little preliminary study in pakistan looking at the whole environment human and animal and we were doing some metagenomics and we were amazed to find masses of mcr1 in pakistan yet there didn't seem to be very little human use and lo and behold there was some cattle feed in the back with chinese writing on it my <laughs> suspicion is banning it in china what do you do with it you move it across the world only a suspicion, but that's what happens, economics, global, global economics. <laughs>